begin by saying good morning, and I appreciate everyone's attendance and participation. I hope that by being here and being around other Christians, you've been encouraged today, and certainly hope that the activities that we've performed in our worship have been glorifying to God. This morning, I've taken our study, and I've specifically our study title, and I've framed it into a question, and the question is this. Is God willing and able to forgive every sin? You know, another way that you could rephrase that question is, is there a sin or is there a class of sins that God won't forgive or He simply can't forgive? In Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 1, the Bible says through the prophet, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Or in other words, there's no force, there's no opposition, there's no agent of darkness that can hinder God's ability or limit God's ability to be able to extend a hand of mercy and to save humanity if God so chooses to do. Now, Satan can interfere or try to disrupt the relationship between man and God. But if God unilaterally chooses to extend grace to humanity, Satan himself cannot oppose God or limit God's ability to do that in any way. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, the Bible says, "...the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance." It is the desire of God, it is the want of God for all people to come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It is not the intention of God. It's not the desire of God for people to wander in this world hopeless in darkness. You know, sometimes as humanity, we can take twisted desire in seeing the mistakes and the mishaps of other people. You know, we look at other people, we see them suffering through their consequences, and we say, you get what you get, or, you know, got some humble pie. That's not the attitude of God who sits in heaven. The attitude of God who sits in heaven, who looks at humanity, has compassion upon humanity. And He wants them to be saved and forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus, when He was on the cross, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus, when He was being killed, looked at those people who were committing those atrocities and made that statement. And it's a profound statement considering the circumstance in which that He made it. Jesus was God in the flesh. And so when Jesus said something, it was a reflection of the nature and the character of God. And so when Jesus in His death says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing, it shows us the seriousness and the importance that it is when it relates to God and forgiveness. The Bible says in John chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into this world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. The intention of God by sending His Son into the earth was not to condemn the world in essence. It was to give humanity hope. It was to extend forgiveness to mankind. That's what God was doing when He sent Jesus Christ to provide hope and rescue to mankind. If God would give His Son... What else would he not give? He gave the most precious thing that he had. And that's why Paul says in you know, Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, God commendeth us or God shows us that even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
When you had nothing to give God, you, had no, you were completely bankrupt, God looked upon humanity and said, I'm going to love them and I'm going to give them hope through Jesus Christ. You know, I was in a convenience store earlier this week and I was watching a young man check out and he walked up to the front counter and he slid his debit card and the clerk said, card's declined. And so he swiped it again and she goes, sir, you have a zero balance on your card. Just pretty hateful like. And then immediately, someone in line jumped up and said, you know, I got it. Let me, let me just get it. Why? That person was extending compassion to that person. That person didn't have any money. They couldn't give them anything. But you know what? Their life mattered. And they were hungry and they were trying to get food. And even when you had nothing to give God, God looked at you and said, you matter. I'm going to give you Jesus Christ. David said in Psalm 103, As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame and he remembers that we're dust. When someone who's a Christian repents of their sin and they turn away from their sin and they do it in sincerity, God takes that person, he takes their sin, and he separates it by infinity. And that's a picture of God's complete forgiveness. That's a picture of how God's forgiveness is not lacking in any sense. It says that, you know, just as a father pities his children, some of you have children, and you watch your children struggle and they have difficult times in their life, and you have compassion upon that because you remember when you were little. And the big things to them in their mind are, are, are magnified, and you, you take compassion upon that. That's the way that God looks at us, that God understands our frailty. God takes that into consideration that God's willing to forgive if people will accept His forgiveness and that His forgiveness is complete. In John, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and can cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word all there comes from the Greek word pos. It means whole or everything. Or that if any... It murder, any sin, if somebody would confess that, if they would become a Christian, if they would confess that, if they would repent of that, God would forgive them of that sin. So we come back to our question. Is there a sin or is there a class of sins that God simply can't or won't forgive? Jesus made an interesting statement in Matthew chapter 12 and verses 31 through 32. He says, Therefore I say unto you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven unto men. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. If anyone speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. Neither in this age or in the age to come. Now that statement right there has caused pause among so many throughout the centuries. I mean, we've just gone over verse after verse talking about God's willingness to forgive, God's ability to forgive, God's want, want to forgive people, God's wanting to forgive people, that God will cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that word means everything or whole. But then we find an isolated account in the Gospels where Jesus makes this statement that there's a sin, that God won't forgive. And so the question becomes is, is there a contradiction in Scripture? Well, obviously not, because we know that the Scripture is the inspired of word of God. It's truth, that it's held for thousands of years, that it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, that it can't be contradicted. 
And so obviously there's something beyond the surface, beyond the superficial level that Jesus is talking about that needs to be explored so that it can be distinguished from all the other scriptures that talk about God's willingness to forgive mankind. Mark, uh, Mark's account of this says, Surely I say unto you, all sins will be forgiven to the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation, because they said he has an unclean spirit. When we look at these accounts, you see this account in Matthew chapter 12, you see it in Mark chapter 3, and it's also a portion of it is recorded in Luke chapter 12. And obviously, if we're going to tackle a hard scripture, we have to look at the context in which that it's written, and we'll do that. But before we do that, I want to look at a few other things before we get into the context. That word blasphemy there that we read in Matthew chapter 12 comes from the Greek word blasphemia. It means reviling, evil speaking, railing, injurious speech. If you were someone who blasphemed against God in the Old Testament under the Levitical law, you just got the death penalty. In Leviticus chapter 24 and verse 16, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourners as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. So blasphemy was a serious offense. And blasphemy means to speak out, to slander, to accuse somebody, to defame somebody. And it was a serious offense. I want to look at just a few verses concerning blasphemy in the scripture that Paul writes about in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1. Let as many bondservants that are under the yoke count their masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. And so here what Paul's talking about is people who are subjected to other people, the master-servant relationship. If you're an employee of an employer, you are to respect those who are in authority over you. Why? Because that's the will of God. And if you're not respecting and being reverent to those who are over you, then you are acting outside of the will of God and you're giving other people an opportunity to look at you and say that you're... If this is what Christianity is, if this is a Christian and this is the way that they treat people who are their bosses or those who are their masters, then I don't want to be a Christian. Same, same concept in, in Romans chapter 2 and verse 24. Paul says, For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because, as you know, as you know it is written. And so when Paul was writing there in Romans chapter 2, he was addressing the Jews. And he says, you know, you Jews... You, you walk around with your pompous attitude, your nose in the air, and you condemn people because you have the law, and then you go around and you preach about not committing adultery, but you yourselves are secretly, secretly committing adultery, and then you go around and you tell people not to steal from other people, but yet you are secretly robbing from God. And then these Gentiles who do not have the law, who are not Jewish, they look at you, they look at your hypocrisy, and they mock God and they blaspheme God because of it. They speak out against God. They accuse God because they don't see it as something being real. So that's blasphemy. It's to speak out. It's a, it's, it's a serious offense to slander or to defame. Now, I want to look at this. Jesus said, all manners of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. Okay? God is willing to forgive all sin. So the question becomes, could someone blaspheme Christ and be forgiven? Well, Jesus specifically said in Matthew chapter 12 and Luke chapter 12 that people that you could blaspheme the Son of Man and that it would be forgiven unto people. That's expressly recorded in the Scripture. But looking at Matthew chapter 27, 
verses 39 through 40, when Jesus was uh, dying on the cross, it says, And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. And so as Jesus is dying, people were walking by, they're reviling him. Some, of their, some translations said that they railed against him. They were blaspheming him as he died. Now, were these people forgiven? Some of these people who walked by and mocked Jesus and said these atrocious things to him in his death were some of the same people on the day of Pentecost when Peter said, you took Jesus Christ by wicked hands and you killed him. And then they panicked and said, you know, what are we going to do? And then Peter told them, you repent and be baptized. Some of these people who made this statement against Christ ultimately became Christians and added, were added to the church. So blasphemy against Christ, we see evidence of it where it was forgiven in the Scripture. What about blasphemy against God? Can you think of an instance where somebody could blaspheme God? What's the most common thing that comes to mind? Someone who denies his deity, someone who denies his existence. To say that God does not exist or that God is not omnipotent or powerful is defamatory in itself. It's blasphemy. Well, some of those Gentiles who looked at some of those Jews and said, if this is what being a Christian is about, then I guess you know, God is nothing. Who blasphemed God? They later became Christians who Paul wrote to in the book of Rome and other epistles that he that he wrote. In Revelation chapter 16 and verses 8 through 11, Scripture says this, And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and the power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and blasphemed the name of God, which have the power over these plagues. And they repented not to give him glory. And the fifth angel poured out his vial of the seat upon the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues for pain and blasphemed the, the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they repented not of their deeds. Now, Revelation, you know, it's a symbolic book. It's a symbolic book about the persecution of the church under the first century, under the Romans. There were people who were Christians who were going through extreme persecution, and they were angry at God because of this persecution and because of the things that they were enduring. And it says that because of that pain and because of that persecution and anguish, they spoke out against God. But guess what? These people didn't repent to give Him glory. Which infers that they had the ability, they had the ability to repent. They just chose not to. You know, there are people sometimes who are upset with God. And they say things to God and they vent their anger and their displeasure with God conditions of life and people are concerned sometimes that maybe they've blasphemed the Holy Spirit and I submit to you that that's not the case. If people will repent of that, if they'll accept Jesus Christ, if they'll repent and to stop saying things that are outside the will of God, they can be forgiven. Which raises a question. All manner of sin can be forgiven. Blasphemy against Christ can be forgiven. Blasphemy against God can be forgiven given. So it raises this question, is the Holy Spirit more superior than God? Is the Holy Spirit more superior than Christ? Is God inferior to the Holy Spirit? Is Christ inferior to the Holy Spirit? Is one better than the other? 
And the answer to that is no, 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 and no. The Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 5, verse 7, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, the Holy Ghost, and these, uh, excuse me, for there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. The Word they're referring to Jesus Christ. So they're equal. One's not better than the other. Which raises the question, well, why would someone, why can someone be forgiven of blaspheming Christ or God, but not the Holy Spirit? Well, obviously, there's some deeper meaning there that we need to discover. And to do that, we need to get into the context of the chapter. In Matthew chapter 12, if you look at the, we'll look at Matthew's account and provide that context. The disciples had been going through a grain field and they were plucking grain. And they were eating that grain because they were hungry. And so the Pharisees said, is it lawful for you guys to be doing that on the Sabbath day? And then Jesus looked at them and said, you know, do you remember the time that David and his men were hungry and they went into the house of God and they ate the showbread for which they were not supposed to do? He said, if you spent more of your time focusing on mercy instead of sacrifice, or would you spend more of your time looking at mercy instead of the legalistic rituals of the law, you would understand the nature and the character of God. Shortly after that, they enter in the synagogue, the disciples and Jesus, and there's a man who has a withered hand. And Jesus goes to this man and he's going to heal this man's hand. And the Pharisees accuse him, they say, is it lawful for you to be healing people on the Sabbath day? And Jesus said, let's be real. If you had a sheep, and that sheep went and fell into a pit and was trapped on the Sabbath day, would you go get it? If you had a cow that went and fell into a pit on a Sunday, would you, go, you would go get the cow. Let's just be honest with ourselves, is what he said. Right? You would go get that sheep. Why? Because that sheep has value to you. It has value. Whether it's going to feed you, whether you're going to make money off of it, whether you're going to go use it as a sacrifice, you know that you would go get that sheep. Is human life, is a human soul more important than a sheep? And it says from that point on, the Pharisees went out and they plotted against him how they might destroy him. You know, the Pharisees constantly accused Jesus of blasphemy. Why would they do that? Well, because under the old law, blasphemy had a death sentence. And if they could get the charge and the conviction on him of blaspheming, they could use that as an opportunity in their mind to get rid of him. And so this is the backdrop of the people that we're talking about here, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and the attitude, the seething, militant approach that they took to Jesus. This heightened sense of contention, this adversarial effort against Him. Then it says in verses 22 through 24, Then one was brought to Him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute. And he healed him so that the blind and the mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does cast out demons except by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. And so Jesus goes, he heals this man with a withered hand. 
He goes, he finds this person who is blind, who can't speak, who's demonically possessed, and Jesus is going to perform a miracle by casting that demon out. Now, what was the purpose of miracles? The purpose of miracles was to establish the deity and the authenticity of Jesus Christ. It was through the working of the Holy Spirit when Jesus performed a miracle. It was by that Spirit that testified as to His deity. And so Jesus goes to do this, and when He casts this demon out, they make the accusation, you did that in the name of Beelzebul. Well, I want to look at that term there, Beelzebul. Beelzebul means Lord of dung or filth. Lord of the flies. It was a false god of the Ekronites that we see in 2 Kings chapter 1 and 2. And essentially the, the children of Israel took that name and through cultural, they used that as a reference to Satan. So when the Pharisees made the accusation, you cast out those demons in the name of Beelzebub, you did that by the spirit or by the help of Satan. And this is Jesus' response to that. He says, but Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. And so Jesus shows the fallacy and how illogical it is to make that statement. If Jesus, if, excuse me, if Satan commissioned demons to enter a man, why would it make any sense that Satan would take those demons outside of a man to establish power? It would be like Satan fighting Satan. It would be a civil war among Satan. It doesn't make any sense for Satan to fight himself, to commission a possession and then say, look at me, I take the possession out. And then he goes on to say this, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder the house? And he who's not with me is against me, and who does not gather me scatters abroad. And so again, he makes another argument of how illogical it is to make the accusation that he's operating under the power of the devil. He says, you've got to have a stronger person. If I'm going to take over someone's house, I've got to go into that house and I've got to subdue the, 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 the man of that house to show power over him to be able to take his house. And Jesus says, when, basically, when I cast out a demon, I'm doing it by the power of God to establish the authority of God over the power of of Satan. Then Jesus gives the warning. Therefore I say unto you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. If anyone speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. And I want to look at that, that phrase there, in the age or this age to come. Well, what does that mean? Well, going back, some of you have seen diagrams like this before. Jesus lived when? He lived in the time of the Mosaical era. There was a time when God talked to the patriarchs, when God talked to Adam, talked to Abraham directly. But then we know that Moses went up on Mount Sinai and received the Ten Commandments and the law and came down from the mountain and established a new covenant, the Mosaical law, where people communicated to God or God communicated to the people through the prophets. And Jesus was living in this era until his death. 
And so Jesus says it won't be forgiven in this age. He's saying it won't be forgiven in the Mosaical age, the age that which he was living in at the time, nor would it be forgiven in the Christian age. After he died and was resurrected and the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost. Well, why? Why would Jesus say that? I think for us to understand this, we need to understand, just briefly kind of go through some of the operations of the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do? Well, the Holy Spirit bears witness of Christ. In John chapter 15, verses 26 through 27, it says, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proclaims from the Father, he will testify of me, and you will also bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. And so part of the operation of the Holy Spirit is to attest to the identity and the authenticity of Jesus Christ. Again, when Jesus Christ performed a miracle, He did that through the power of the Spirit to show that He was the Son of God. When Jesus died, when the Word was written, it was inspired. That was inspired by the Holy Spirit to attest to the identity and the authenticity of Jesus Christ. So when you read the Scriptures and you read about who Jesus Christ is, you're doing that by the power of the Holy Spirit who recorded those words. Secondly, the Spirit convicts the world in John chapter 16, verses 7 through 11. And when He has come, He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they do not believe in Me. Someone, when they hear the gospel, when they're pricked in their hearts, when they come to Jesus, they do that through the operation of the Holy Spirit. And once they're baptized, they receive the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit creates conviction in the hearts of men. Thirdly, the Spirit reveals the truth and the will of God in John chapter 16, verses 12 through 13. When He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He will guide you into all truth. So, what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? I believe the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the condition of the heart which led to the willful rejection of God's saving power in Jesus Christ which led them to attribute the works of the Holy Spirit to a demonic being. And that the essence of blaspheming the Holy Spirit is the persistent rejection of convincing the work of the Spirit whose job is to expose the sin and to accept Christ. Think about the context that we just studied. These people unequivocally witnessed the power of God to remove a demon, and they attributed that to Satan. There was no way they were going to ever accept the authority of Jesus Christ. You say, well, it says, word, we, textualist, it says, can't be forgiven. Well, Mark 16 and 16 says, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That's what it says. So if somebody said something irreverent to the Holy Spirit and then later was baptized and became a Christian, are you saying that they can't be saved? Because the text says that they can. Obviously, there's a deeper meaning. That's why Jesus immediately, well, if we look in Luke chapter 12, verses 8 through 10. Also, I say unto you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man will also confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven unto him. But he who blasphemes the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Immediately in Luke's account, Jesus is talking about, if you're going to confess me before men, if you're going to accept me, then I'll accept you before God. If you're going to deny me before men, then I'm going to deny you before God. And then immediately Luke parlays that into blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. They were not going to accept 
the forgiveness. They were not going to accept the calling of the Holy Spirit to follow Jesus Christ. And because of that, they rejected Jesus. And anyone who rejects Jesus cannot be saved. That's why it's unpardonable. Immediately after Jesus makes that statement, He says this in verses 33 through 35. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. You brought of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Yes, they blasphemed. They said something irreverent. But that, but that speech was a manifestation of their heart. That they were never going to accept Jesus. That they were never going to repent. Again, which makes it unpardonable. And that leads me to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12-13. through 13. Beware, brethren, lest there be any of you with an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it's called. Today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. I think that relates back to what Jesus was saying there in Matthew chapter 12. W.E. Vine said this quote, I liked it. Anyone with evidence of the Lord's power before his eyes should declare it to be satanic, exhibited a condition of the heart beyond divine illumination, therefore hopeless. You know, there are many people who fear that they've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul made a statement, and they fear that they're beyond repair. The Apostle Paul made a statement in, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13. He says, Before I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, I was an injurious man, but I obtained mercy because I did these things in ignorance and unbelief. And I, I put the scripture up here, and I want to back up and maybe put a little bit more context to it. And he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who's enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although formerly I was a blasphemer a persecutor, an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant in the faith and love of which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world, the same sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy that in me Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern of those who are going to believe on Him for everlasting life. Paul said part of the reason that God chose him. Paul had a lot of great qualities. He was very well knowledged in Torah and the law. He was very dedicated to his service to God. And God took him, even despite all of his faults, all of the issues that he had, and used him. Why? One of the reasons is as an example. I was the chief of sinners that people can look to me who was a blasphemer and know that God can forgive them if they will repent. Did, let me ask you, did Paul blaspheme? Of course he blasphemed. He took Christians. He compelled them to blaspheme. He consented to the stoning of Stephen. Well, the question becomes, did Paul blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Well, was he there at the stoning of Stephen? He was. What did he say to St What did Stephen tell them that led them to take Stephen's life? One of the last things he said to them was, you stiff-necked and you uncircumcised people, you do always reject the Holy Spirit. Do you think it makes logical sense that if Paul's going around killing Christians, arresting Christians, that he's encountering their speeches and their sermons and their discussions and their topic of the Holy Spirit and how it relates to the operation of God in the first century? Of course. Paul literally took their coats, 
while, and consented to the death of Stephen while they threw stones at him and killed him. Of course he was a blasphemer. Of course he, in essence, blasphemed the Spirit by saying irreverent marks about the Holy Spirit that Jesus proclaimed and his followers there to come. Paul says, I'm the example to look to as a chief of sinners that God will forgive. So what can we take away? Is that God will forgive all sins which, can, which Christians confess and that they truly repent of. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. If we're going to take Matthew chapter 12 and say, you know, blaspheme against the Spirit, speak a word, use the textual approach, then we got to do the same with 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7. Obviously, there's a deeper meaning than Matthew 12. It was the persistent rejection of Jesus and the working of the Holy Spirit to accept Him as deity. John chapter 1 and verse 1 through 9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word all is encompassing. It means everything. Do you think that there's a sin that the blood of Jesus can't cover? That it's just, well, Jesus' blood is just not sufficient enough for this particular irreverent remark that someone made 30 years ago out of anger at God. It doesn't make any sense. God is faithful. God is willing to forgive. And that's the nature of God. He wants to. You can't take the totality of the Scripture that says that God would give His only son. Would you give your son to, for humanity? That's the extent that which he would go, but there's this one technical little thing. If you do it, then you're out the door. You've got to take the whole evidence of the Scripture, and you've got to contrast it with what is the distinction here. And you've got to look at the context in which it's written. That people would look at the miracles of Jesus that was divinely put in their face, and to say that's satanic is beyond reprehensible. They would not accept him, and that's why they said the things that he did, and that's why they wouldn't be forgiven, because they wouldn't accept it. The only sin that can't be forgiven is a sin that's not repented of. I appreciate your time and your attention this morning. I hope that everything that I said is truthful, has been in accordance with God's Word. God is willing to forgive you. If you're someone who's struggling or somebody who hasn't been immersed with our Lord in baptism, that offer is still out there. God gave you His Son. He gave you the most precious prize He has for you to have an opportunity to come and to have a relationship with Him. And if you're someone that needs the help of the congregation, or if you're someone who hasn't taken those steps in baptism, we ask that you come forward as we stand and sing.